Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land-use warriors, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On this week's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, a longtime friend, Eric Camo Linker, joins us. From glitter to hardcore rock crawling to pirate 4x4 to desert racing, moving boats around the world, and rescuing airplanes in Baja, Camo has more experience than most. And so this is going to be a real pleasurable interview for me to talk to Camo. Um, we go back, well, to the early days of uh, of off-roading and we rock and tin benders and all that kind of stuff. So the late nineties, early two thousands camo. Thank you for agreeing to do this and letting everybody know. I'm going to let everybody know that camo and I are actually sitting across from each other in his house at a table. So this one is uh, kind of special. It's only the second one I've done like this. I, I like doing these so I can see the look in the face and play off of that. So camo, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Rich. That was a very kind introduction. And I will start off with, I turned you down the first two times you asked me to do it, which was kind of weird. Um, I can't even say exactly why I didn't want to do it, but a part of me felt like when we sold Pirate and I walked away from that world, it was behind me and I wasn't really ready to... uh wasn't really ready to talk about it. And maybe I'm still not. It's not that I'm bitter or anything. I mean, obviously, we did very well. And I've moved on past that. I guess I just wasn't ready to have a conversation that goes out to the world about it is all. Right. So not necessarily what we're going to talk about. From what I gather, we can touch on it. Um, yeah. So anyways, you asked me again. And I think I said possibly, and you laughed and said, way to commit. But <laughs> at least possibly was a lot better than the two no's I gave you previously. So thanks for staying on it. And I'm, and I'm glad to be here. And I, I did want to do it in person. One, because we, we do go back to the 90s. We've known each other for a long time, both professionally and just as friends. I mean, we live in a pretty small community and, you know, 
for where we basically grew up. So, absolutely, the last twenty five years of our life, we've been through at least the rock crawling portion journey on similar parallel lines and experienced some of the same hardships and challenges and successes and at the same time guts to watch it grow up and see what it became. Exactly. And I think it's, uh, I wanted to do this interview with you, first of all, because everybody is asking, especially after I did Lance, you know, when's camo coming on? When's camo coming on? Or when after I did Bender, you know, the guys that you were really tight with and, uh, yeah, you did say no a couple of times, and uh, I did say it exactly a way to commit. <laughs> so I'm glad uh, I'm glad we got this this to happen. So the very first question I'm going to ask you is the same question I ask everybody: is you know where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in a small town in Southern California next to Pasadena, it's called Sierra Madre. But at a very young age. I moved to Morro Bay, California, which is near San Luis Obispo, small town of about 10,000 people on the, it's, you know, it's a beach town. And it might be like one of the last, like Southern California, small beach town. It's literally the same population, 10,000 population is when we moved there in 1970, it's the same population. It's kind of that no growth. I'll call them hippies, but very much a, we're here, lock the doors, nobody else can come here and build. So it's still a small town, very popular tourist spot, obviously, but it was a pretty fantastic place to grow up. And about how old were you when you moved there? Mm, I think I was five when we first moved there, and my mom, my brother, and I moved there. But my dad continued to live, because of his job, continued to live in Southern California for two years and drive up on the weekends. And we lived with my grandma. And then when he finally moved up, you know, we bought a house that is the house I grew up in. And, uh, yeah, what a, it's such a neat place. If you've ever been to Morro Bay, and you mentioned Rob Park, it turns out, like, later in life, him and I became friends. I found out that their family has a house there. So, like, he grew up going to Morro Bay for the weekends and getaways and family vacations. And that's pretty awesome. I've I've surfed there one time. Um, I had a girlfriend that uh, went to college at 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 San Luis Obispo, Cal Poly. And I'd come up from Santa Barbara when because I was going to college down there, and. You're and we'd UCSB. camp at like Avila and stuff like that. No, I, I went to uh, Brooks Institute of Photography. Ah, Brooks. And then did Famous some school. Yeah, and did some city college there as well. I did not realize that. Yeah, that's actually a trained commercial photographer, product advertising was my degree. So yeah, a little different. <laughs> yeah. Well, growing up in Morro Bay was uh Wow, it was magical. You know, it was a you know, I think growing up in that era, let's face it, we're a little older, and I graduated from high school in the 80s, but it was uh, the era of latchkey kids, and, you know, you came home when the streetlights came on, and, you know, my parents were at work, and we kind of, I teased my mom that we raised ourselves. you know, we were kind of on our own, but we spent our days surfing and playing at the beach, and 
screwing around on boats and fishing and basically growing up on the ocean. And a great lifestyle. I mean, that's uh, the, the nice thing about that area is it, the way it's situated geographically, it's almost hard for it to grow any bigger. Well, yeah. they call it the hidden kingdom for a reason, and it really can't grow bigger. Now that they have state water, I guess technically it could, but because of where it's at on the coast, you're right. There's really not room to grow like the Southern California beach communities have. But really, it's the politics long ago that stopped the growth. I guess you would say I grew up being like in a Republican household, and we might have been one of three and all of Morro Bay, because when I say hippies, what I really mean is it was a pretty liberal place to grow up, but somehow I grew up a very much Republican Nowadays, I think I'm indifferent to both parties. I kind of can both pound sand for all I care. Like, let's just do the right thing, people. Forget your... Yeah, anyways, we probably don't want to go into politics. <laughs> politics and religion, those are the two yeah, that are pretty we'll stay hard. stay away from those. <laughs> you but, can't convince uh, anybody of you know to go your line if they're against it. That's just the way it is. But because I grew up in a family business... Um, we actually moved to Morro Bay because my grandmother moved there and started a um, retail store. And my mom, we moved there because it was growing so much. My mom moved there to help. And they turned it into a small chain of retail stores. So I grew up in a family business. And maybe it's that business like background that I had that, like lent more towards the Republican side of the, the fence, but definitely not so much like as a kid, but like I still own property there. My brother still lives there, but going back now, you definitely feel like an outsider, an outcast being a not liberal driving a Prius around. <laughs> I, uh, I have to admit this. I was, uh, I grew up in a, a very liberal household. Uh, my dad worked for the federal government. My mom was a teacher in the medical profession. And growing up just outside of San Francisco, I think I changed politics or my ideals once I did get into business. When I worked for others, it, it didn't matter. I really wasn't, you know, growing up, up until I was in my mid-20s, I wasn't very political anyway. I didn't think about it. it wasn't something that, that was a driving force until I got into business for myself and then saw the hurdles that were thrown in front of me by the government to, to try to prosper as a small business. I'm, nowadays, I'm pretty much not political. I don't really think about it. But I will tell you that my two best friends – that have been my best friend since first grade. They're both pretty much as liberal as they come. And when we're together, it never comes up. It's not part of our conversation or thoughts or, I mean, so. Yep. It's not something I'm so stuck on that, like, I can't talk to them or even, like, acknowledge their existence. But, for the most part, I'm not political. I believe in what I believe in. 
And those and are your personal beliefs. I don't really care beliefs. what side of the politics it is because it's just bullshit. Right. So let's uh, let's get away from that and talk about those early years. Were you interested in school? Were you a good student or were you kind of indifferent? I was a terrible student. And because my parents were busy building a business empire, I don't want to say they didn't have time for me. We traveled for a bit. Like, I've been very fortunate that even in high school, they took me with them and traveled the world. Like, so I've been around the world before I even got out of high school, all over the, like, every major city in the U.S., they would always take me on business trips. But they weren't real involved in my, I guess, education. I had one expectation, and that's that I would graduate. But short of that, I don't want to say they didn't care because I know they did, but they were kind of hands-off. And it bored me. I don't want to sit here and tell you, like, I'm too smart for them, but just, it didn't suit me. And at that time, we had a, I guess, a nationwide recognized automotive program at our school. Like the team that came out of our auto shop went to the national, believe it or not, they have national competitions and had a streak going where they won the top honors in like, automotive technician troubleshooting competitions back in Washington, D.C. They won it for something like eight years in a row. Wow. And when they didn't win it, they were always in the finals. So we had this incredible auto shop. And, you know, I guess it was just a different time back then. I would not go to math class and I would spend it in the auto shop working on my car. (laughs) And nobody's like, I'll never forget one time. You know how they call if you miss school, the office calls your parents and like, why isn't your your child in school? And my mom literally said, well, he left for school, but I know his truck wasn't running well. Have you checked the auto shop? And they went, what? And literally the vice principal came walking into the auto shop and said, your mom said you might be in here. Why aren't you in class? Well, my truck doesn't run. And if it doesn't run, I can't get myself to school. So if you want me to come to school tomorrow, I need to spend the day working on my truck. And he literally said, okay, turned around, left, and let me work on my truck for the rest of the day. (laughs) And also, if you look at Google Maps, Morro Bay High School is literally built in the sand dunes on the beach. So when the windows in the classroom are open, you can hear the waves breaking. And more than one time, I've crawled out of the classroom window and would go out to my car where my surfboard was and just go surf. Rather, I mean, waves are good. I can't sit in class and listen to the waves breaking. and Too much distraction. And try to focus (laughs) on algebra. So, you know, surfing and working on my car was more my distraction. But I did get the diploma. I did graduate. And um, I think part of that helped me develop, I guess, the habit that I've been a lifelong learner where 
things I'm interested in, I'll dig in deep and learn about it. Whether and even before the internet, I would get the books. I would go meet the people. I would get involved in that subject to learn about things that I was interested in. Whether I mean, not just automotive things, but you know, it could be geography. It could be you know any number of subjects. So I find myself like all my life, I've been. I guess a student of learning. So no, I wasn't very good at school. Barely graduated. If I ever even knew my GPA, I'm guessing it was. I don't even know what F plus would be, but like a one point one maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Not very good. As a matter of fact, I was short one credit in English. Vice principal called me in my senior year. Said, "Well, I've got some good news and bad news." Bad news is you don't have enough credits in English to graduate. The good news is we don't want you back, so we're going to overlook it, and you're going to get your diploma, and you're not coming back. <laughs> Different times. <laughs> they didn't make you take one English test, huh? Something easy. They didn't make me take a test. They didn't want me in summer school. They just wanted me gone. So I I got my English credits in high school by being on yearbook staff. That was the easiest way to do it. I didn't realize that that's what was happening, but it worked and uh, didn't have a problem with that. <laughs> and now yeah. I'm a publisher of a magazine. There you go. But luckily I have a really good editor, Shelly. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. Have, so, ha- having a good partner in anything makes a lot of things possible because none of us can have all the skills to be at all. So Correct. Whether it's a business partner, a marriage magazine, whatever. Having having a good partner is definitely key to success. Agreed. Agreed. So after high school, what was the next step? Well, I certainly had a strong interest in cars and working on cars, building my, we'll just call them trucks or Baja bugs. Actually, I was big into Baja bugs. And so it seemed like the right thing to do would be go to what is it uti or you know basically the automotive trade schools and so they came and visited me at home and you know do the thing where they sit down with the parents and i signed up for it and was gonna go i was all signed up and at that time i was working a graveyard shift at the gas station and i was flipping also been a snow skier all my life because even though i lived at the beach um fresno sierra summit or china peak as it's actually called is only like two and a half hours away so grew up loving skiing flipping through the magazine one day and i see that ad in the back of ski magazine room board and an annual ski pass Plus, I think minimum wage at the time was like three thirty-five, and they McDonald's was paying twelve bucks an hour. You could work night shift. You got a ski pass, and you got an apartment. And I called the next day, and they're like, "All right, you're hired." And I literally loaded up my stuff, and I said, "You guys, mom and dad, I'm not going to automotive school. I'm moving to Vail, Colorado, to be a ski bum." And I spent three years there. Skiing 100 days a year. Working at McDonald's. That was pretty short-lived. Okay. <clears throat> um, it was an interesting experience working for McDonald's uh, just because it's such a refined process and 
it was actually a neat experience and I'm glad I did it, but it turns out in Vail, they're desperate. Everywhere's desperate for employees and there was just better jobs to be had once you were there and got to know a few people and kind of got in on the inside and everybody's trying to recruit good employees. And so it was pretty easy to find a, a better job that also included a ski pass. So, so you loaded up your stuff, I'm assuming in a Volkswagen in a bug. No, at the time I had a Baja bug that wasn't going to drive to a thousand miles to Vail. And one of my best friends that I mentioned earlier, their family car was this Toyota station wagon that they had like the entire time we were kids and growing up, that was their family car. And they gave it to Jim when he turned 16 and he promptly overheated it and blew it up and it had been sitting in his backyard. And I found myself in need of a car and he was away to UCSB going to college. And I went over and his mom was there, Carla. And I said, Carla, I want to, Jim said I could buy the Toyota. And she's like, buy it. It's blowing up. It's no good. She's like, you can have it here. Take, get it out of here. I want it out of here. And so she gave it to me. I drove it home and put a new head on it, put some new tires on it and literally drove it back and forth to Vail over the next three years, probably five times. And it, the heater never worked in it. So the entire time I'm living there, there's no heater in my car, but I was also one of the few people there that had a car. So I don't know why it just turned out that way, but. So you had a nice scraper for the inside of the windshield? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you know the routine. Well, I had a 58 Volkswagen or a 54 <clears throat> Volkswagen bug and would go from the San Francisco Bay Area up to Tahoe to go ski as soon as I turned 16. Cuz I was in a ski club that from like the age of 8 or 9 years old and would go every weekend up to Squaw Valley. So, as soon as I got my car, it was like, okay, out of the ski club, I'm driving myself. Well, I drove my Baja bug Skiing enough times, which is only two and a half hours away, to know that it wasn't going to make a 24-hour road trip to Vail reliably. <laughs> and while I'm pretty good at fixing stuff, I needed a little bit better transportation. So Makes sense. The Skidoo, as it got named, served me well. <laughs> so working at, at Vail, you, you worked on the mountain? I did a number of jobs. From I was a ski instructor for a while which was a pretty prestigious job. It certainly got you the chicks. The problem was during the day you were teaching other people how to ski, not skiing. And so I went through a number of different jobs until I I got on um, mountain night crew for the mountains so I could work at night, ski all day, and then sort of work at night. There's yeah, it's not strenuous work. You ride a snowmobile around, you look at a few sprinkler heads, and it's a pretty kickback job with great benefits. So I found my niche there that let me ski every day and pretty much slack at night. Okay. Slack, slack off. It, not a lot demanded from me for work. <laughs> it was a good ski bum job. Perfect. And so that suited me well. And my dad... Every year, both my brother and dad came out to ski and just, you know, I'm living there. They had a place to stay. 
And the third year that I was there, my dad mentioned to me that they had started a wholesale side of their company and kind of by accident, it grew bigger than they could really manage and still be focused on their core business. And so they were going to shut it down. And he said, if I wanted to move home, I had a pretty much here it's yours, take it, do what you will with it, fold it, run it into the ground, make it thrive, whatever you're going to do with it. And I talked to my brother who was still actually in high school at the time, and we decided we'd be partners in it, back to the partner thing. And over the next 18 years, we turned it into, I guess, what everybody knows as the Glitter King, uh, 110 employees doing millions of dollars a year with companies like Walmart, Michaels, national retailers, and was the Glitter King. Sold literally tons and tons and tons of glitter, like unimaginable amount of glitter for more things that you could ever even dream that glitter's used for. But of course, like, to the rock crawling world and certainly on pirate four by four glitter bombs, <laughs> glitter bombs and stripper glitter is like the easiest thing to explain, but it's in so many products. It's, it's a pretty phenomenal little niche product that like, who would think that you could sell millions of dollars worth of glitter and have a hundred employee company with glitter. It was, it was pretty wild. All there in San Luis Obispo. Actually, in Morro Bay. Morro Bay, okay. I was okay. the largest private employer in the city of Morro Bay. That's pretty, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. It was interesting being a big fish in a little pond. It was hard to hide from just about anything because, you know, small town atmosphere and everybody wanted to think they knew your business. So it was interesting. I was ready. You know, looking back on it, like I was ready to get out of that town and that situation. But it's one of those things, once you leave, you realize what you had. It's pretty hard to live there because it's so expensive. Like, the cheapest piece of property, which is literally a teardown house that's uninhabitable, is over a million dollars. It's where wealthy people go. It's where wealthy people go to retire. And so it's hard to live there and like be working class person. And once you leave and sell your house, it's hard to get back to. So luckily I still have property there. Possibility I could move back there someday, but you know, still have family, still have roots, still go there. Cool. And so while you were doing glitter is when you got into off-road? How did you get in? How did you get started in off road? Going back to high school and my Baja bug, if I wasn't in an auto shop working on it, like I said, the high school is literally built in the sand dunes, which means I'd be out wheeling my Baja bug in the sand dunes of Morro Bay, which was illegal, but back in those days, it really wasn't like you could just go do it, right? And so. I spent a lot of time just Baja bugging around out in the sand dunes and quite often would go to Pismo Beach. Like I'd cut school in the morning, 
and me and a couple friends or sometimes just by myself, I'd go to Pismo and just go wheeling all day by myself or a couple friends. And then that led to an interest in uh, desert racing, Baja Bugs. I kind of followed it through like Hot VW's magazine and started going to off-road races in Las Vegas. And my dad went with me one time and there was a race car for sale. It was a 1600 Volkswagen based car. And it was pretty much a beater, but it was also pretty cheap and had some money saved up. And my dad saw it and thought it was pretty cool and said, I'll split it with you. If you have half, I'll pay the other half. Let's buy that thing and race it. And so we did. And I got into off-road racing and of course was like completely overtaken by that. So I got into off-road racing, even though like living in Morro Bay is not exactly known as the <laughs> off-road capital of the world. Um, very much got into off-road racing and did that for years and broke my neck, as most people know, um, crashing, which is, I guess I'm good at that. Probably better at crashing than I am winning, but you know, whenever I crashed, broke my neck, slowed me down a little bit, but I'm pretty dumb and kept racing anyways. Um, but at some point, I had to slow down, and I think at the very earliest of rock crawling, actually, like when Marlin Crawler came out with the first crawler box, my buddy had one of the, I'll just say one of the early prototype units in his Toyota. And he took me up to the Sierras camping. We literally went up to uh, Strawberry Lake, if you know Strawberry and Swamp Lake. Went rock crawling and instantly, like, it clicked. It's like, I can still go wheeling. I can still have fun off-roading. But, like, my off-road racing, because of my neck, was done. It was, I was paying too steep of a price, and the pain was too great, and... But rock crawling hit me just as hard as uh, desert racing. And I was able to, you know, for me, it's always been as much fun to build them, to work on them, to maintain them, prep them, as it was to actually go race. Like racing in a way is very selfish because it takes a whole team to work on and make a race car and get a race car ready to race. But yet only one person gets to drive it. So it's kind of selfish. But with rock crawling, like I could work on it mostly all myself, build it mostly all myself and go drive it. And I loved it and literally took one time going camp and do it. And I started building one and I guess the rest isn't history because there's a lot of stories behind it, but I was instantly became a rock crawler building Toyotas, got a Toyota out of a junkyard. Um, a lot of you probably remember my green Toyota with the exoskeleton, but it had the, flatbed cage on the back where my kids would ride and the toolbox was on the side <clears throat> and that was at the very earliest days of pirate when there was only like maybe a hundred people on there and tinbender rob park was one of them and they were from ridgecrest and surprise canyon at the time was you know a big attraction and they had posted their club we're gonna go there anybody want to join of course i do like, okay, I'll go. And out in the middle of the desert, they're parked on the side of the road waiting for me early one morning. It's like where we decided to meet. 
And I'll never forget, I was with my ex-wife at the time, and as we're pulling up, they're a pretty motley-looking crew from Ridgecrest, okay? <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just leave it at that. They're a little rough-looking in some pretty beat-looking rigs. And my wife's like, just keep driving. Just keep going. Don't stop. Don't stop. <laughs> I'm like, no, man. I've talked to them online. They're cool. They're cool. This will be, be fine. But she's like, no, don't stop. <laughs> and we hit it off instantly. You know, it just went from there. Like, that was my first connection on Pirate with, like, my fake internet friends became real. And, you know, to this day, I still consider them, you know, a true friend. You know, we've done a lot together, had a lot of great experiences, and happy to see his, him grow in his field and find success and follow his career. But I can say that about a lot of people I've met through Pirate, watching them succeed right in, in their business it's it was a unique perspective on pirate watching these companies start up as nothing in their garage one of them that i i guess recently found out about was um rigid lights he started on pirate just making them in his garage and selling them on pirate and ultimate actually we we're in baja at a race and he started telling me the story and i wasn't even aware of it. And he sold that thing for like, well, just $100 million. And it literally started because of Pirate in his garage. And he's yeah. like, no, I want to thank you. For, thank you, Camo. Like, without you, this never would have happened. And I was, I was blown away. It was, wow. Yeah. Like I, I, like, I knew that it was supporting all these other companies doing things. But just how much impact it had, I don't think I realized at the time and until years later hearing the stories but for some people like rob park for example you know because we've been friends and i actually introduced them to dan at blue torch to get his first i guess real job in the industry like i was part of that so i was aware of it but it, it impacted a lot of people a lot of companies absolutely it it was a way for for rock crawling to get the word out that that was becoming a sport instead of just a hobby. I think it had a lot to do with it becoming a sport. I mean, you had your efforts at the time. Lance and I were just in a place where like, even like we're just two idiots that caught lightning in a bottle. Like we were just lucky, right place, right time. It's not that we were so smart and figured it out. We just happened upon something that was magic, special. The kinda, right, it, the right time, the right place. It kind of right happened people. to us as much as it happened to everybody else. Um, so it was hard to be aware of just how much impact it had at the time. Certain aspects I realized at the time, obviously, like when we promoted an event, even yours, for example. And people would show up or know about it because of that. So, yes, it, right place, right time. Yep. For sure. Those pirate years doing, I, I don't know if event coverage is, is really what to call it to begin with. It was more like going out and experiencing the events and talking about it and showing it. It wasn't like you guys, I don't know, think, I don't know if it was like you guys went out going, okay, 
we're going to go out and do this as event coverage as as a production no we, so much we, as just experiencing it we very much had the goal of doing event coverage it's hard to remember what the technology was at the time because technology changes so fast we were always trying to do more than technology allowed but we very much were trying to do event coverage like we had this dream of what we wanted it to be as a live production event coverage and we were always fighting with the technology available and also there's several things that pretty proud of that I feel like we pioneered that is normal today but at the time was practically impossible certainly on the budget that we had to do the best we could with event coverage like our goal was event coverage and maybe at times it didn't seem like that we were just doing the best we could with what we had and trying to achieve something that didn't exist at the time when you first came to me and asked about if I would be interested in producing or having another class of vehicles yeah. at the We Rock events. And it was the F-Toys. Yes. And uh, you guys put together, um, the, and I said, yeah, as long as you guys run the rules, you know, I don't have to worry about the cars are teched properly and they fit into the, all the, the, the group as long as, you know, as long as the group took care of that. I was I was game. Bring it on. And I thought that was pretty interesting, you guys, you and Mike, doing that. So where that came from was my background in desert racing. Was Most of it was in class 1600, which is a very limited class. There's very specific rules on what parts you can use. It's a driver's class. So the, the cars are supposed to be identical, like everything from the weight to which parts you can use and so it's very much a spec class and because I was a Toyota guy I just had the idea that like all the people I knew with full-bodied Toyotas myself included you know they were getting smashed and ruined and the next step was truggies if you will and starting with a Toyota frame and the Toyota running gear made sense so what if I could find manufacturers that would build a, have somebody design a frame or a, you know, a tube chassis that would weld onto the Toyota because the rest of the parts were pretty much all standardized. Instant buggy and Mike Hendricks ended up being the primary manufacturer. My dream was really to have a couple around the country. So shipping wasn't an issue. Um, but Mike, I think he made over 150 of those. So it was really based off my experience in desert racing and just wanting a class that was affordable and people could build with the Toyotas they already had and take them out and compete because that was at the time what the rage was, of course. And they turned out to be, you know, capable wheelers, fun trail wheelers. And the competition was fun. You know, there was always enough people in the class that it was it was a good time. I agree. It was it it was popular, and uh, there's still so many of those buggies out there running around that are the ex comp rigs. Yeah. Truly, there was only probably 25 that that actually came out and competed at least more than once. And but they're 
those guys there's they're still out there being wheeled there's over 150 of them that were built and wheeled that i know of it might even be more like 175 um been a while since i last talked about that but uh yeah no for sure it was successful and like i never thought it would be the most popular class to watch because you know they're still toyotas right right um but they were quite capable it was fair because they were all built very similar specs even though you had some options on how to set up it was more in the setup and they were pretty affordable to build so you know i felt like as it was it was a success it did what i guess my idea for it was and a lot of people embraced it so it was fun and uh those tin bender years there was a lot of uh a lot of was a lot of partying at jv especially um and then there was the competitions between clubs which i got involved with with the with you know carnage for the con not carnage on the con <laughs> you guys did that that one uh, kind of outlaw event up there that was that was just a spur of the moment brainstorm i had but with the tin benders they're a neat group of guys it was I think what attracted me to the tin benders when I first met them and went to Surprise Canyon was the camaraderie. They were the unclub, even though most people think it's a club. It's really an offshoot of an older club in Ridgecrest. Um, I think it's called the Gear Grinders, and it's your traditional Jeep club with a lot of rules. And it was the younger generation of that. And they were purposely not an official club. It was just like-minded guys that liked to wheel hard, beat on their... They weren't going to do it the traditional club way where you get in line, there's a caboose, you're on the radio, everybody stops at each obstacle and watches old school jeeping, I guess. And, you know, JV was their stomping ground, which, I mean, we all know is a great place to wheel. And we just went there with the mindset of destroying shit. Like, we had fun just destroying shit. We weren't... Like, having the pretty rig and showing off and going to car meets and waxing our rig was... Like, we were there to smash them. Like, we would... I'll even say King of the Hammers is really was born of the spirit of the way the tin benders wheeled. We would be sitting around camp, almost like itchy-fingered gunfighters, everybody staring at each other to see who was going to flinch first, and nobody would want to call it, and somebody would, like, make the move, and Lamont start. Everybody would run to their rig, and whoever got out in front was the one that got to pick what trail they were going to because everybody had to follow them. So just getting to the trail was a race, and it was perfectly fair game to try to crash the guy in front of you. So, like, <laughs> just on the way to the trail, we're going as fast as we can trying to crash each other. And the first person of the trail, they got to pick the trail, and they're the trail leader, and they weren't stopping to see if 
people behind them are okay. They're trying to stay in front of the guy behind them, and the guy behind them is trying to wreck him, run over him, and get in front of him. Like the whole thing was a race, and that's just how we wheeled. So we're smashing each other, and like sort of the legend of the ten benders, I think, grew out of people seeing that and it being so different than traditional wheeling at the time. Um, (laughs) And I guess I'll even tell the story like Dave Cole, when he got into wheeling, he had heard of the 10 benders and he, he was telling a friend of his, he wanted to go to Johnson Valley, but this friend knew of the 10 benders and knew that it was the 10 benders stomping ground. And literally told Dave, no, no, you can't go there. That's the 10 benders. They'll kill you. Like, <laughs> you you don't go mess with the 10 benders. They'll wreck your shit. And <laughs> he went anyways, and that's where I met Dave, was at JV. And he tells the story best, so I'm not going to try to tell it. But we literally met on the trail and he got we'll just say mixed up in our antics of smashing each other and like he thought it was great but he was also scared to death we were just gonna run him over and leave him for dead (laughs) but then once we finally got and it happened to be claw hammer the first person and i think i was the first person to the top and so i get to the top of claw hammer second person third person and as dave pulls up and he made it we're passing around a bottle of Jack Daniels and literally because he made it, it made him one of us and like, here, want a shot? And like literally since that moment, he, while, yeah, he just like that made you one of us because it was an unclub. It was just one of those things. If you hung out and wheeled with us and that was your mindset, you just kind of became a 10 bender. And yeah, we developed a little ceremony to jump people in and whatnot, but it was really just a matter of showing up and wheeling with us kind of made you a 10 bender. And from that, it was fun to taunt the pirates because they were the biggest, most notorious club at the time. Notorious. And, you know, we were shit talking wheelers that just like to have fun. So, Carnage on the con was just calling them out. Like, yeah, you guys think you own the con. You think you're cool. Well, we're going to show you what we do. And it was really nothing more than that. Just calling them out. And okay, let's raise some money for a good cause. And let's invite a couple other clubs. I don't think the other ones, nothing against them. But, you know, they were probably more traditional clubs. But obviously cool guys and part of the Rubicon and part of the scene. Um, But it was really a smackdown with the pirates. We were, I think out to show the world that, yeah, the pirates are cool. And they were feared on the Rubicon. Like people were afraid of the pirates on the Rubicon. Oh yeah. For sure. They were, we were out to prove to the world that they weren't the baddest dudes around. (laughs) And that was the start of that. To add to that story, so I came up with that one day and just threw the challenge on the internet, and it became the legend. But I'll never forget, during that event, the sheriff's helicopter shows up and starts circling, and then it lands, 
and I forget how many, but I'll just say four armed-dressed sheriffs come out of the helicopter, and I see them asking a couple people and everybody pointing towards me. And these four sheriffs come walking towards me. Are you camo? Yes. Do you have a permit for this event? What event? (laughs) And they just kind of laughed because, you know, they read about it on Pirate just like everybody else. And they literally said, this is bitching. It's cool. Be safe. We got to go. They were, they were super cool about it. They said, if you need us, call us. But looks like you got it under control. There was a big crowd. And it was, I mean, the box back then, you know what it was. Nothing will ever be that again. It was a pretty rowdy, it was a gladiator. Hey, man, that was yes, wild. It was. That was wild times. And it was that with a little extra spin on it, I guess, with something at stake. Yeah, that was, that was fun. That grew into... The next year, um, Carnage for the Con up at Donner Ski Ranch. And that was the first event we did that I put on at Donner. And that was over, it was a 4th of July weekend. I was more than happy to have somebody else be the person the sheriff was going to come look for. (laughs) Like, for me, it was just smack talk, you know, throwing down against the pirates and having fun. Yes, we raised some money. It was cool, but I was more than happy not to be the promoter of it. And thank <laughs> you for taking that over. Uh, I, I I enjoyed it. That's for sure. You know, the the rock crawling has been my life story. In real quickly, is I never had a job or a career, whether my own business or working for somebody else, that lasted more than five years. I would. I I would. I mean, it was like management at Sears Automotive. Within a short period of time, I was, you know, in a year and a half, two years, I became a, uh, I became a store manager from being a salesman. And it was just that natural progression. I, it always happened, no matter where I went or what I did, my photography business, landscape business, it, it just never, I mean, all those things were less than five years. And when I found... The competitive rock crawling. My first trip on the Rubicon was in 81, 82. Wow. And I was instantly hooked. Of course, I was a young guy, just married, didn't have the funds to have, to build a Jeep. But man, I would I would ride with everybody and anybody that would go up. Um, I ended up with a one-ton Chevy in 86 that I'd take through. And uh, it was still my work truck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not an easy fit on the Rubicon at that time period either. No, but full it was size, fun. <laughs> it wasn't really full size friendly back then. Not that it necessarily is now, but it's more so. More, it's a different place now for sure. But you know, the the whole idea was to get to Spider. Yep. You know, I mean, I didn't get to the Springs until probably twenty years. But back then, you didn't need to because for locals, it was all about the box and yep. Spider Lake. That's that's where the happenings was. That that's where it was at. That was the Rubicon, at least for us. Exactly, and uh, you know that that rock crawling gave me gave me a sense of purpose to provide a place and something to do for people that uh, that wanted to take that next step beyond just trail wheeling. And there was already events going, you know, ARCA and, and what became Pro Rock. 
but it was, uh, and then U Rock started about the same time I did. And it all was spun from turning that, I mean, rock crawling, whether, whether it was just regular trail route wheeling or going out and busting trails like you guys would do with the tin benders down in Johnson Valley, it was still a competition. It was not, you know, it was like, okay, I'm going to do this obstacle better than you can do it. Watch me. You know, so we just took it and refined it and put rules around it so that, every, you know, so we could have a scoring system and proclaim a real winner without people, you know, applauding and, get, you know, holding up cards saying you got a nine or a ten. Well, you found a way to make a business out of a brand new sport, which is pretty amazing, whether like you did it by doing events I did it via pirate four by four. Somebody else did it by making a widget, a chassis or whatever. But it's still to this day, like when I think back on my pirate years, maybe the thing I'm most proud of was how it enabled so many people to make a business out of something they loved. Yeah, taking a hobby and making a lifestyle out of it. Yeah, no, and it, it enabled a lot of people to do that. Yeah. And I'm probably the single most proud thing about Pirate and the friendships. It's amazing how many, like my wife's always called them my fake internet friends, but they've never been that to me. They've always been very real. And everyone I've met, like I've always felt connected to, like, because we're kind of the same cloth, like just to be on pirate, certainly to survive on pirate. <laughs> you're, you're just one of, you're just one of those people. That's my people, our people, you know, we're, we're all the same in, in a, at a very core essence. You know, we might have different exterior things, but there's something that we truly are passionate about. And that was the rock crawling so they were never fake or internet friends, even if I'd never met them. They were very real to me. Right. I agree 100%. So then, Pirate, you guys somehow got into the whole uh, racing with Schaefer and do, getting back into the desert racing thing for you and jumping into it to begin with for a lot of rock donkeys. We were, Lance and I... We're at Bob Sweeney's event at the Placerville Fairgrounds. I forget exactly what it was called, but it was basically a short course smash em up Jeep event. Bob Rogie was racing, and an interesting side note, I'd never seen this before, in a Jeep six-cylinder Cherokee, he not only hold the block, he broke the crank in half, and it still ran, and he still finished. It's the most strangest thing I've ever seen. But we're at that event watching the short course racing, and Lance, of course, knew that I had a desert background. I talked about it a lot. It was still very much part of my soul. And as we're watching that racing, I referred to something about like desert racing and how much fun it is to be in the car for hours and hours and hours just on level 10 getting it. Like the 
longest adrenaline rush you've ever experienced to where it just goes on and on and on. It's, it's truly unique. And it was literally, well, why don't we go do it? And we made one call and bought a car right then and there. So we bought a Jeep Speed, which just seemed to make sense. It's affordable within our price range, I guess. If racing and affordable, how stupid does that sound? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's just say we had enough cash to buy a, a, a decent Jeep Speed. Just one of those spur of the moment seemed like something to do, seemed fun and cool, and we could cover it and do it. Like, all right, I'll try that. And so we went and did it, and, like, for me, you know, I was just as hooked as I would ever been on it. And Lance took to it like a duck in water. I mean, it's... Nobody can do it and not... Like, if you love rock crawling you're going to love desert racing. There's just, I mean, look at King of the Hammers, right? It's, it's a thrill. It's, it's the shit. Yep. So yeah, we got into that and, you know, I think just because of who we were in pirate, we were able to attract enough other people who maybe have dreamt of it, doing it or seen it or thought it was cool and wanted to be part of what we were doing. So we were able to attract enough other pirate guys to get involved in a race to where we kind of made our own little group to compete against and shit talk on pirate and throw down. And it sort of brought in, and I'll just use Pete, who became a true friend of mine and I miss to this day, but it brought him on board more so (laughs) with pirate. And he obviously started the rock donkey thing. And that just became its own. That just became its own thing. And it was, it was fun. I mean, you know, it was kind of, you're proud to be a rock donkey and go show them idiot desert racers. Like we're more than just rock crawlers. Exactly. Yeah. I, I know that uh put it this way, we had zero, and I'm not talking just Pete. I'm talking rock crawling had zero respect from the desert racing community. We were we weren't even nerds. We were just we were nothing. They, they it nothing. did yeah, exactly. Um I took I'd been friends with Robbie Gordon since we were fourteen desert racing together in the same class. Like I've raced against him in 1600 class. We got, I remember getting thrown out of casinos, me and Robbie trying to play the slot machines when we're like 16 years old and getting thrown out of casinos and just being hoodlums in Vegas. Cause that's where you're hanging out at the desert races. And, uh, he was opened a new shop that the fabricator on my desert team, he went to work for Robbie. And Robbie was having an open house and invited me down and wanted me to bring my rock crawler. So I brought my rock crawler. This is my truggy that John Hall built. And at the time, you know, it was all about articulation. So it had 
just stupid, crazy articulation to where your average person looked at it and was like, what? Is that thing broken? <laughs> so I took it down to his open house and it's on display with, you know, there's trophy trucks and class one cars and all the desert bling. And the biggest crowd was around my stupid rock crawler, which I had flexed out on a forklift. And everybody was fascinated by it. And Robbie from the get-go was interested in, like, what it was all about. Like, he might have been the first desert racer who truly gave rock crawling a serious look and a bit of respect and, like, went and tried it. But, like, we had no respect. And so that's why the Rock Donkeys was so funny. Like, Pete's, Pete was good at naming things like that, and it was just funny. Um, and it was neat to see through King of the Hammers, see it come so full circle to where, at least with the trophy trucks, like, that's one of their highlight races now. And they very much take, you know, the rock crawler serious it's they're right they're legit they're I'm, well, they're badass I, if you're a motorhead and you look at the state-of-the-art king and the hammers car you can't help but see the amount of like real engineering and fabrication and sophistication and money but you know they've come a long ways from well when you think about it you know the the four-wheel drive class was you know basically class three, um, you know at in at score or any of those you know and that's that big Bronco you know the Broncos yeah. and the the Blazers and that kind of stuff. Big Ollie. Yep, and then uh, and then the first you know the only one that really took it outside of that, outside of you know just modifying the stock rig, um, was the Land Shark. You know, being a four-wheel drive. But, you know, that had some limited success. And then Shannon, you know, took his his, uh, 4,400 car, you know, know, King of the Hammers car, and went down to go play in class one. And everybody was like, this isn't going to work. You can't can't go those speeds with four-wheel drive. Right. And well, people, he, so, he we, you know, it was proved that you can now. But even in the early days, before even rock crawling was a sport, there was several high dollar, even factory involved attempts to make four wheel drive class one cars. I've seen several of them. One of the more famous ones, reportedly, it was a million dollar car. They spent a million dollars developing this car. And it was a lump of shit. It didn't work. It just didn't work. It was. So I think every, and everybody knew that it didn't work. You could see it didn't. It was just wrong. And so I think they just assumed there's no way a rock crawler can go fast. Because, like, I forget what Nissan spent a million dollars trying to do it. And if they can't do it, you rock donkey certainly can't do it. And, you know, that seems kind of normal. We're a bunch of garage guys just, you know. That's the difference between engineers and garage guys. Well, I learned very early on, never underestimate a redneck. (laughs) They will get some shit done. (laughs) That's very true. 
I mean, look at the look at the the market now. Um, you know, when when we got first started in rock crawling, everybody was you know they were they were basically you know the per, the highest percentage of them, and the guys that were winning were in full bodied vehicles. Um, you know, the fire ant. You know that by Curry. You know that's amazing a, vehicle. Yeah, yeah. Amazing vehicle. And the technology in that was. You know, nowadays isn't looked at as as real technology compared to what is being rock crawled now. I mean, that would be a mod stock rig in our in our we rock classes. I mean, it would be, you know, it's not or Shannon's pinky. It was a tube right? chassis Jeep, which was cool just because it's a tube chassis Jeep. But compared to like what the desert guys were doing, like it was just kind of a joke. Correct to us, it was. Like at the time, like the coolest Jeep there was. Like, look, wow. Exactly. Even today, I think Pinky would still be a sweet rigged own. Be a fun wheeler, like on the Rubicon and whatnot. And and look at where where it's where the technology has gone in in the four wheel drive industry because of the competitions, because of people wanting to do it better. Same thing that happened with desert racing back in the in the late 60s, early <clears throat> 70s, is that, you know, oh, we're going to take Volkswagen Bugs, you know, in a, in a pickup truck or, a, or you know, a, <laughs> whatever it was that Gardner, you know, drove, you know, with just big tires on a streetcar and get across Baja. And where that, that, that got started years before we did. I mean, in four-wheel drive, it was all about, you know, how many more shocks can I add? You know, can I do it, uh, re-arc the springs to get the lift? You know, it, that wasn't real. I mean, it was advancements, but it wasn't real technology. If you look at the desert racing scene and how long it took to develop the technology because of the time, one thing that maybe gets overlooked about what Pirate did for rock crawling, it condensed the development time because we, and when I say we, everybody on pirate, we could go have an idea, take it out this weekend, try it. And everybody could see if it worked or didn't work or what did work about it. And the next, like the next guy could improve upon last weekend's effort and next weekend be out with a better version of it. And it vastly accelerated the development of the sport because everybody could see what you're doing so you would share it and then take what worked, improve on that. And so literally week by week, the technology was advancing. It wasn't just one person. And while there are individuals who have made great contributions and Shannon Campbell always comes up in, in my head and you know, there's, there's others, but we'll just say that your garage guys were able to see what worked this weekend. And I've got a little different twist on it. Let me try that. And then we could see how that worked. And the advancement was so much faster than it had ever historically been because of pirate and everybody could go there and share, share what that was information. Happening. And it yeah. was like, as a mate, I mean, that's what the internet 
it was like best at, and the pirate was the best of the best of that for sure. And there was so so many people with so much different ex- like life experiences, whether it's fabricating or just and what they do coming together, and it was able to accelerate rapidly. Rapidly, yeah, I agree. I agree. And uh, you know, all of the the motorsports are that way now because everybody because of that shared information and that collective of of being able to communicate and observe and critique what other people are doing where before without it you know you'd show up with something on your your race car and everybody'd look at it might take a might take a couple of weeks for teams to figure out what it was you were doing correct but on pirate you were happy to share what you figured out and you know, share that information and the next guy could take it and try it a little different or, you know, modify it. And yes, today I think all of motorsports does that, but I have no doubt Pirate was the first. It it, it led the way in doing that. It, I agree. You know, I agree. It, sure, there was other forums at the time and I used to track them like how many users and their metrics and all that. It was part of my job. And Pirate was in a league of its own. It was, at the time, of all websites, not just automotive, one of the largest websites on the Internet. Obviously, you know, Facebook and other ones came along, and it changed what the Internet is today. But back then, Pirate was one of the largest websites on the Internet. The fact that it was about rock crawling is, you know, that's not what they were tracking. Rock crawling websites, right. it was all <laughs> websites. But yeah, nowadays for sure, all motorsports have, I guess, their edition of Pirate. But. So, how did uh, Pirate TV come about? Because that was something that was pretty cool. I'd I'd be sitting in Placerville watching you guys up there in Georgetown, you know, do your thing, and uh, I was always intrigued by it. Because you guys, it was, it was kind of like a conversation we're having now, but with a lot of input, and just talking, you know, the, shit, basically. The, <laughs> the very first one, I wish I could remember what the subject was, but I believe it was an upcoming race, and we decided to just have a live conversation. We're in the office doing what we normally do. And we just decided to have a live conversation and make it pirate TV. So we went out in the shop, set up a little thing, and it was just Lance and I just talking about this upcoming race that was going to be and who we thought was going to do what. And like, you know, we had a lot of inside information with various teams, some of it confidential a lot of times, you know. I'd, both of us had spent a good part of the day on the phone with whether it's vendors or teams that, you know, wanted to talk offline. And plus reading most of what's on, you know, you got to stay abreast. So we just had a lot of information. So we just wanted to talk about this upcoming race and kind of break it down in sort of a talk show format. And we did that. And it turned out pretty cool. So we decided to do it again. And 
Like, I don't think Lance ever wanted to be on TV. He, he, like, when I met Lance, he was very shy. He had a hard time talking to people he didn't know, I guess. You know, he, he was, I don't want to call him a computer nerd, but he was just more comfortable not being in groups of people that he didn't know and didn't want to be the face of, like, a TV show. So I did it. And that's where the... <clears throat> Bottle of Jack came in and he put one on the desk and like we had no time limit to it. It went on until I got so drunk I fell off my stool and that was the end of the show. (laughs) But from there forward with just the guests, we always had the bottle of Jack and it was really for the guests. Like you come on, you know, because it was a full set in a T, you know, in a studio. Like it looked like a any like television production studio. We had cameramen, light men, sound men. You know, it was a full TV set. And it was a little intimidating for guests to come on to realize like, oh, this isn't just a hokey little thing. This is like a real TV studio. And like people that you would think, wouldn't think would be nervous about it. And I'm not going to drop names. Like you could see they were visibly nervous to where they could barely... They weren't going to have a comfortable conversation. And, you know, booze is a social lubricant. So have a shot or two of Jack and loosen up. And we're just going to talk about whatever we talk about. And so it just kind of became a thing that there was always a bottle of Jack on the the table until we got, um, we'll just say, our first big national sponsor, advertiser. And their concern was the drinking on set. So we just hit it under the desk. And on the commercial breaks, we would all do a shot. (laughs) So we still did it, but it wasn't in public view. And, you know, just back at that time, Lance and I had just gotten divorced. Like, literally, when Lance and I became partners... We were both, I'll just say, happily married. And within six months, we were both divorced, single, and, like, ready to raise hell. So the time, and I was living, I, literally the, I was living in Morro Bay at the time. And he's like, well, what are you doing? If we're going to do this, we're trying to make pirate a business six hours apart why don't you come sleep on my couch and let's do it together. Let's, let's just go all in. All right. So literally I didn't even own a truckload of stuff at the time because it all went away. I drove up to Lance's lived on the couch and like pirate was a 24 hour a day, seven day a week endeavor. And I think it's just fair to say after recent divorces, it was time to raise hell, and we did. So the reputation was partly earned, partly urban legend. Like, we've never really been, like, that hardcore partiers. But when you're trying to be, I guess, popular and get attention, like going with the crazy party animal routine isn't, the worst act. So it was 
not really staged. It's like we would go have thousand dollar bar bills at rock crawl events because, you know, we were having a good time. Reno rocks. Pretty much all of them. <laughs> Reno rocks was off the hook. Well, for us, most of them were. But yes, Reno rocks was epic. It was a, that was a. F- it's too bad it didn't continue, but the fact that it was a one-timer kind of makes it special. And hats off to Barbara because definitely at the top of the list for cool events. Absolutely. And everything that happened around it for those three, four days was just... Good time. There was some pure insanity going on. <laughs> yes, there was. Yes, there was. So then... You and I share a story um, with uh, with Bob Rogie, especially, and then Jody Everding, and that was uh, we were on our you and I were on our way back from the Baja One Thousand down in Cabo. We raced the Jeep Speed to Cabo, <clears throat> and we can both tell the story. But the part that I cherish. We're driving back on the pavement, and about halfway up the peninsula, I remember saying, this pavement sucks. Like, why are we on pavement when there's a race course right over there? Let's take the race course home. Like, we're in no hurry. We got nowhere to be. We got three four-wheel drive trucks. Let's take the race course home. And I remember we turned off the pavement, and we're taking the race course home. And you can take it from there. I just wanted to throw... Yeah. Like how we ended up on the race course coming home from the thousand. Like, haven't you had enough? And the answer is no. Never. We'd never get enough. And uh, what was funny is that we were not in a four-wheel drive pickup. We were in a two-wheel drive Nissan, uh, kind of a club cab pickup at that point. Well, I believe it was a rent-a-car. Well, it was it was a, a kind of a partner of mine had the vehicle and said, here, take this truck. And it had the big crunch in the front where somebody who had driven it prior had hit a pole and kind of caved in the, the front bumper okay. and the grill. And uh, that comes into play later on when we crossed the border. Weeks later, it seemed like weeks later. It was a while. <laughs> it took us a while to get home, yes. But we uh, we found we, we finally found Bob Rogie um, on the way up, and he was out at uh, Buena Ventura on the sand spit and he had broke his, his Cherokee and had gone, you know, basically I'm done. I'm out of here. And just kind of, you know, was doing his own thing. Bob Rogie style. Yeah. Bob Rogie style. So we found him out at Buena Ventura on the sand spit and we had a couple of bottles of tequila with us. And I, that's pretty much all we had. I think we, Somehow we ended up with some shellfish. Um, we bought some shrimp from the local shrimp peddler, which if you've never been to Buena Ventura, it's actually you've driven by it and seen it, and it it's a cool place to go be, yes. for sure. It's a lot of good memories there of just funny stuff that's happened in my life. <laughs> Most of it, no. All of them involved Bob Rogie somehow. This case <laughs> was with you as well. So we, uh, we, I remember watching the sun go down and then watching the sun come up. And 
I don't think there was any sleep in there. Um, and it was, it was a glorious evening of just sitting around bullshitting the three of us just having, you know, one of those times. And then, uh, the rest of the trip home, yeah, we're dirt roads, race course. Um, and the most memorable part began when we were at a military checkpoint between Gonzaga and, um, Portacitas. Correct. And we Which stopped. Which at the time was a four-wheel drive, slow, rocky dirt road. Yeah, it was not. It, it, you wouldn't want to take a camper down it. Not at all. It would destroy it. So we are, this vehicle that, that we were in, uh, was, it had these chrome running board, or like running boards on the side that were round tube with a like a imprint for a step on it. Pad. Pad, yeah. And the one on the passenger side kept falling off, so I had tied a rope around it and tied it to the frame of the passenger seat. And getting the door closed was quite the chore, which this will come into play later in the story. So then we're, we're sitting there at the military checkpoint, and this is nothing more than like a couple of pieces of plywood that have been leaned up against each other. There may have been a cactus involved and, you know, the, and some cones. And I remember a 50 cal machine gun and a military tent were the two things I remember from that checkpoint. But other than that, it was a strange, it was just out in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> nowhere. on this dirt road. Exactly. And so we were sitting there talk, you know, trying to get through, they're they're doing the you know the inspection and all that kind of stuff and I don't remember if that by then Bob's truck had broke down and he was on the tow strap at that no, time. No, it was, was still, after that. It was still running at that point. Okay, but we're standing there. Bob and I are trying to communicate with the uh, with the guard, the military guy, <laughs> and. All of a sudden, I, we see you just kind of wander off, and you're looking up, and there's this airplane that's kind of circling around us as it's it's getting lower and lower and lower, and he's circling, and he's obviously got some kind of problem. Well, I heard his engine sputter, and then once I heard his engine sputter, I started watching him, but then I literally saw and heard his engine stop, and I knew that guy's going to crash. So I started going towards the obvious crash site or closer to it. And the, uh, there was an old road or runway that had been. Definitely wasn't a runway. (laughs) Well, no, but it was like, it like, maybe it was, you know, maybe 20 years before and they may have like tractored out, you know, dug out some holes or something. It was a road that went down to a fish camp. That's right. Okay. And it was washed out and rutted and rough shape. So that's the line. That's the line that that's the road or the area that the plane was was heading for. Yes, as he was coming in, there was a second plane up there, and uh, they were there were some people from the states that were had a an experimental plane. I mean, the plane was a normal plane, but it had like an experimental engine in it. it had some kind of Subaru motor or it, something like that. It was like a home-built experimental plane. I mean, it was a real plane. Right. What made it experimental was they built it themselves, and it wasn't like a 
made by a manufacturer. They built it themselves, which made it experimental. And then we, I can remember one of the funny things to me that stood out in my mind was trying to communicate with the the, the Mexican guards, military guys, and the one guy had a mirror, like a little handheld, like reflective mirror that would be, you know, on a semi truck to show you, you know, that what it looked like right next to the truck, you know, kind of a wide angle mirror. And he was standing there and he was like signaling the plane that was still up there. Um, and we were, we were, Bob and I were just cracking up over this because it was just seemed hilarious like you know what what's the guy what are you, what are you trying to tell him? exactly you know like you know you know semi four with you know mirrors or something anyway is that plane crashing like what are you trying to signal here <laughs> exactly so the the other the second guy runs into their shack tent whatever you want to call it and comes out with a bigger mirror now this isn't just a a mirror this is like a bathroom vanity mirror with the cabinet still attached, you know, that goes into the wall. That's and he funny. brings this out, and I look at Bob, and I said, oh, long-range communication now, you know? I mean, it was, it was just this big, huge vanity mirror that he this guy's holding. And so, you know, Bob and I are just laughing our asses off, and you're walking down so toward where the plane is. I missed that because I had taken off for where I figured the plane is headed to try to land, which is that old dirt road down to the fish camp. Right. So I missed that, but that's hilarious. They're trying to – I mean, what are they going to do? I mean, <laughs> that was, over here. That was the whole thing is, you know, what – I don't know what they were trying to accomplish. I have no, <laughs> I have no idea, but it was pretty apparent – they thought we were there to meet our drug supplying plane. That's Correct. what I got out of the whole thing. Exactly. Because instantly when, well, you continue with the story. So so up from the fish camp comes this military, like six by, you know, two axles in the back, one in the front, and it's got stake sides on it. And here's here's all these young military, Mexican military, that, some of them had boots on. Some of them didn't. Some of them had just their underwear on. I remember the ones that scrambled out of the tent that were obviously off duty at the time, literally scrambled into the truck and down to the side of the plane crash in their underwear with a machine gun with their boots on. Exactly. And I remember all of them surrounding, not just the plane, but us, because they thought we were part of that surrounding us at gunpoint and the one leader guy screaming in Spanish, like trying to give us commands of what to do. And, and all of us are of looking us at him like, what? <laughs> you want what? What, huh? Could you just put the guns down, please? And somehow we were able to get them to calm down to where most of them lowered their guns, not pointed at us. And I think they saw it in the, Pilot and his wife's eyes, who they were, I guess for our listeners, they should know that he didn't necessarily crash like Digger into the earth. He was able to glide in and landed on a very bumpy runway. How he didn't wreck on the landing. Actually landed without destroying the plane, but it wasn't running and he was able to glide into a 
safe landing, but their eyes were like you could see the terror in their eyes, and it wasn't because machine guns were pointed at them. <laughs> they just survived a plane wreck. Correct. And I think they sensed that, and we were trying to say, hey, just calm down. Like, we saw it like you did. Like, that it, was intense. It was. And then, then we spent days, maybe even a week, trying to get that airplane out of, helping them get that airplane out of Mexico because they weren't going to get it running. They had to, we had to get it up to. Well, it was so remote. Like, I remember their thought was, that's the end of our plane. It's now, I mean, it's remote. You can't get it out of here. Us being rock crawlers, like, to us, it was just a challenge. Exactly. What do you mean we can't get a plane out of here? Of course, I could get my race truck out of here. I can get a plane out of here. I mean, it must come apart, right? So to us, I think it was just a challenge. And we gave them a ride back. We went to San Felipe with them. And I think it was Sarah Everding's family or friends that let us use their house in San Felipe. Yeah, we were meeting somebody. Because we had Thanksgiving on the beach. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they're at Pete's camp somewhere. Somewhere around there. Yeah, and... um which all turned out great because, you know, we got a Thanksgiving dinner. I remember it was you and I in the truck and the wife. Yeah. And you were in the back seat. She was up in the front seat. Bob and the husband were behind us. And at that point, they were Bob was on the tow strap. Yes, his truck broke somewhere between the plane crash and... San Felipe, where we were staying, and so we're towing Bob. So we're on a 20-foot strap, the two vehicles in line, and we get through San Felipe, and we're heading up to Pete's camp, and we get just past the, the roundabout down there where the race course normally in San Felipe heads off to uh, toward the dumps. So yeah. the road, the, that's where the road, the northbound is like six or seven feet taller, in the southbound and it's two lanes bob's on the strap and right behind me at 20 feet we're doing about 45 miles an hour there's a car pacing us between bob and i next to the strap and i see two dogs run out mm, from some little business run out into the road they get to the center area and stop and then one of them walks out into the fast lane and just like stares at me as I'm coming down on him. And I mean, it's not like I got a quarter of a mile. This is all happening within like a couple hundred, a hundred yards maybe. I forgot about the dog. Yeah. So I can't slam on the brakes. No. Because Bob's right behind me. We hit the dog. The lady that we've got in the truck that, that owns, you know, the wife of the guy that owns the plane starts screaming She's already terrorized, and now we just murdered a dog. So of <laughs> murdered course. a dog in front of her. <laughs> and I, mean, I don't think I, we didn't feel good about it. No, we had no choice. You had no choice. No, but yeah, because I couldn't hit the brakes. I couldn't swerve because no. there's a car next to me, or the road drops off six feet. But it was brutal. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a big thump. Yeah, it was a big that. thump. And then, of course, after I hit it, Bob <laughs> goes over it, <laughs> and Bob. Bob and Bob's wisdom 
comes on the radio <laughs> and says, don't worry, Rich, I finished him off for you. <laughs> well, this lady is just like beside herself. She's she's crying. She's, you know, totally in tears, um, just having a fit. And I'm trying, I mean, I don't know about you in the backseat, but I'm trying not to laugh because I, Bob's comment was just, Classical. Bob. It was Bob. It was Bob. <laughs> and uh, that was that was the second part besides the mirrors that really stood out to me in that, that whole sequence of events. Um, you know what stands out to me? Many parts of that. But there's certain people in your life that, well, I'll just say, I remember we didn't have a trailer. We called Jody Everding, who was with us, but he had already made it back home to San Diego. I remember we called Jody, and this was probably midnight when we finally got back to San Felipe. It was late. And we called Jody at like midnight. Hey, Jody, we need you to come down to San Felipe and bring a trailer. And he didn't even ask like why, just okay, you, that's what you need, that's what I'm going to do. And, like, to me, Jody, and why, like, I remember when Lance and I were trying to decide who was going to be on the team. Like, Jeff Mello was never, like, for sure it was going to be Jeff Mello. But Jody Everding is just all, like, at the competitions when he would be helping other people at the maybe detriment to his own effort, he's just always been that kind of guy, and that's who you want on your team. And that phone call, like when you get a call in the middle of the night, hey, I need you to come to Mexico and bring a trailer. You don't even ask why. It's just like, okay, I'm on my way. And that's the kind of guy he is. Yep. And so then he gets down there. We have to no go. idea what, what, why? Why? Just he's got his truck and he's bringing his trailer. Yeah. You want me to do what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he thought he was going to be like taking Rogie's broken rig back. Which, sure. Yeah. So what? Not hey, we need to go four hours on south on this four wheel drive road <laughs> and go take apart a plane and bring it back to San Diego. Yeah, on a on a flatbed car trailer. Yeah. and figure out how to make that work. Right, <laughs> and then getting it out of the country because remember the the Mexican authorities were like, no, the plane landed here; the, it has to fly out. The Mexican FAA was involved, and they wanted. Like their procedure was they needed to fly their mechanic, whatever guy, from Mexico City because we weren't allowed to do the work taking the plane apart. We were supposed to hire Mexicans to do the work, not to mention all the paperwork. We spent a day at the San Felipe airport with the airport, whatever she was, the airport, whatever, official lady going trying to go through all this. And if you remember correctly, it came down to I bribed her. I gave her a hundred bucks just to ignore it and let us do what we needed to do. <laughs> and I'm like, how much does this guy make a day? Like it comes down to labor, keeping them employed. Here's his money. Give this to him. He doesn't, we don't need him. Like we, this, this plane's out in the middle of nowhere. We don't need a team of Mexicans to take this plane apart. We can do it. And I bribed him. It was really the only way it was going to happen. 
which maybe we shouldn't put that out to the world, but hopefully the statute of limitations applies, and that was then. Yeah, well, we're not in Mexico either. No, we're not. So, but the uh, the, the the rest of the story is we, we get the, the plane onto Jody's trailer, we get it out of there, deal with it at the airport and all the, the red tape there. We get to... Uh, yeah, they didn't want it leaving Mexico. Right. It Supposedly, what I remember is that if it flew in, it needed to fly out. Something like that. They wanted... I remember they wanted to investigate it. It was a bunch of red tape. And it just... We needed to bribe them to make the red tape go away is what it boiled down to. But when, when Jody drove the truck with the trailer and the airplane on the trailer... Through, across the border. Across the border. The it was it was like the first time that it ever happened. And they were They looked at the plane, they looked at Jody, they looked at the plane and just went, I'm not even gonna ask. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> like somehow you guys got it here against all the rules. Just get the get out of here. Didn't even pull them into secondary. Exactly. An airplane on a trailer. Absolutely amazing. Crazy story. And then the, the, the thing that, that amazed the owners of that plane is that here's a couple of, you know, a group of off-roaders, um, anti-environmentalists, you might say. Well, it's a little deeper than that. They were <laughs> hardcore Sierra Club members, yes. active members of the Sierra Club vehemently opposed to off-roaders. Like, they were the enemy, no doubt about it. And we knew that when we were helping them. We knew it all along. We were in it because it was a fun project. And it was some, an adventure. And so, it was an adventure, and somebody needed help, and we were able to help. And if you remember, she wrote that letter that got published in Sierra Club magazine, called Off-Road Angels, where she admitted, essentially, that they were wrong and the off-roaders aren't as evil as their group makes them out to be, that we were, like, real, genuine people that care about the environment and our fellow humans, and it changed it changed their attitude and their outlook. I mean, I'm sure they're still Sierra Clubbers and whatever, but it it affected them pretty deeply that their enemy saved their ass. Yeah, and and we just looked at it as an adventure. It didn't matter what they what their politics were or anything else. We weren't going to leave anybody out there. You know, it was well. How, how often do you get to take apart somebody else's plane and wheel it out of the desert? I mean, come on. Because <laughs> that, if you remember right, we paid or paid. We bribed one of the fish camp fishermen to sit and babysit it and not let any parts get taken off it. And the cost was exactly one case of cold Coca-Cola. That's right. Remember that? And we delivered it. Like, when we got there, he was still sitting on that rock under the shade of the wing, guarding that plane, just like he said he would. And we said, here's your case of Coca-Cola. Thank you very much. And he was happier. And And I believe that was maybe two or three days later. Like, yes. 
he stayed there and did his job. Yep. For That's a right. case of coke. It's uh it was a pretty amazing story. <laughs> it was it was a fun time. Something I'll always, you know, at least highlights of it is what I, you know, I'll sure. remember. But uh that was pretty cool. So then pirate pirate got so huge and you guys you guys had an offer to 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 be able to step away and Lance and I were at Google headquarters at a Google conference Google like we used Google advertising as part like an ad agency for some of our ads and so they had a conference for like companies like us to help us I guess be better partners with Google so we're at the Google headquarters and Google's cafeteria is pretty famous because they bring in chefs from around the world. And it's not just like a buffet. It's a buffet of world-class chefs. And it's the views out of the cafeteria of the ocean. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. So we're at this cat, we're at this conference and it's lunchtime and Lance and I are sitting next to each other. And a gentleman who we've known for a couple of years and has like inquired about Pirate before was sitting across the table from us. And he takes a pen out of his suit pocket and he takes his napkin and he scribbles something on the napkin and folds it in half and slides it across the table to Lance. Lance takes the napkin, opens it up, and I can't see the napkin, but I'm looking at Lance's face. And I knew the second he opened it. Unknown caller. I guess you're supposed to turn your phone off when you do these. So I will do that now. I knew by the look on Lance's face the second he opened that napkin exactly what it was, and it was over. Lance folded the napkin up, put it on the table, slid it to me. I looked at it in complete shock at the number. And you have to understand, at the time, we were having the time of our life. Pirate, it was like living the life of a rock star. Like, we were given the opportunity to do things, to go places, visit factories, meet with people. Like, literally living the life of a rock star. At least a rock donkey rock star. <laughs> and we're having a lot of fun and had so much opportunity and so much more to do. And like, even though it was a 24 hour, seven day a week job, it never seemed like work. It was, you know, they say, find something that you love and it'll never seem like work. It was true for us. It's having a great time. Like we always knew like someday the out would be to sell it. It wasn't right then, but it was when somebody writes the proverbial check that you can't say no to, couldn't say no. I personally, like, I'll use the word bitter, but I wasn't ready to sell it because, honestly, I was having too much fun being, being camo and living the life and getting to really lived the dream like why would i want to stop doing this like pretty hard to pay me enough money to get me to quit being a big kid getting to 
I mean, it was fun. But at the same time, it was that check that you just can't say no to because you never know if it's coming again. But I was a little bit bitter, and like so much of my identity at that time was being camo. Like it was, it was kind of rough on me. Like, not only did I go have finally have the surgery on my neck that I had needed for a long time and it had been putting off. So after that, but I didn't even log on to the internet for a year after we sold it. I completely checked off the internet to the point where my wife had to bring it up to me and she's like i'm a little concerned like you don't communicate with any of your friends who are even local like yes they're your rock crawling buddies but they're your friends like you're you've checked out and it was just i think i was sad i was sad it ended you went you were going through a depression i was you know separation it was a huge it just happened so quick and while i'm Obviously grateful that we were successful and able to sell it. And for me, enough money that, like, I don't have to have a job anymore. I haven't had a job since then. I don't need to work for money. I'm not like I'm baller rich and I can go jet-setting around the world, but I'm comfortable and I can do what I want to do and enjoy life, which is a pretty unique opportunity to own several homes that are paid for and get to do what I want that I'm truly blessed. But at the time, yeah, I went through a bit of a, a shock and a depression and was, I guess, a little bit bitter that we sold it like right in the midst of having the time of my life. That's understandable. But but I've gotten past that and, you know, it's, I cherish the memories now. And, uh, the newest gig that I know that you're doing, and I don't know if there's something in between there that I've missed, but that's the, <clears throat> what I think would be just like the ultimate job. And that's, that's moving boats all around the, the world. I mean, that's, that is, uh, you know, I'm a boat owner now. Um, not, not like the ones that w- would hire you to, to move, you know, their, their, their boats from, point A to point B. Um, but it's still, you know, the, that life is, is really kind of cool. It is the ultimate job. Pretty much anybody who likes boats and finds out what I do. We went to dinner the other night at a steakhouse and it came up with our waiter and he literally almost started crying. He's like, you are living my dream life, my dream job. That's like all I've ever wanted to do. So a lot of people have that reaction, but it it's funny how it came about. You know, growing up in Morro Bay, comfortable on the ocean, boating, you know, something I've just always done. <clears throat> and when we sold Pirate, I said to, I, to Heather, my wife, I said, honey, Let's buy a boat and sail off into the sunset. And so she grew up in the mountains and I'll just say is not comfortable with the sea like I am. And she looked at me like I had three heads and was completely crazy. She's just like, she's like, 
I'm not sailing around the world. As a matter of fact, I'm not leaving the side of land. And we go on, we charter boats every year, like in the uh, British Virgin Islands, you get a catamaran and island hop, which is basically bar hopping. But like land is never more than a couple months. You can always see land. And it's fun and it's just, and you're in paradise. But she's like, no, I'm not, I'm never sailing. I'm not leaving the side of the land. But if that's what you want to do, go buy a boat and do it. Like if that's always been your dream, do it. You got the money, buy a boat and sail it around the world. And so I started looking for a boat and I found one that was far away. And at the time I didn't have this skill to sail a boat across an ocean. And so I had to find a captain to deliver it for me. <clears throat> and I did. I met a captain. That deal fell through. And about a year later, on a Wednesday, my phone rings. And it's Captain Nick. And he said, hey, Camo, you want to go sailing? My answer was, of course I do. And he said, can you be in Hawaii on Friday? Of course I can. I got on a plane, flew to Hawaii, and sailed a boat back from Hawaii with him. We hit it off. I enjoyed doing it and became his engineer slash mate. And his clientele is such that they own these incredible yachts that are, it's, they're exploration yachts. They're made literally for traveling around the world. But they're also slow, and it takes a long time to go around the world. So they will fly to where their boat's at, and they pay a captain to move the boat without them. So we move the boat from, you know, one cruising ground, let's say the San Juans, and next I want it in the Mediterranean. Well, that's a five-week trip, and let's face it, people with that kind of money don't have the time to do that. They have businesses and empires to run. So they pay, and I say us, but captain, it's his customer base. You know, he's got a large customer base of these yacht owners that need somebody to move their boat from season to season to the next place they want to be to be in paradise. I guess just fell into it that I've got the time and the ability and literally I'm on a different boat every couple of weeks, taking it to some incredible place on getting paid to fly. They fly me first class all like everything's paid for and I'm getting paid to like basically live on somebody else's yacht and move it around the world. This last trip was from Florida to Australia, which is 12,000 miles, which is 12 time zones. It's exactly halfway around the globe. Like, I literally got paid to take somebody's boat halfway around the world. It took us three months. Of course, it's a dream job. I will literally be driving the boat in the middle of the night, and I will just start laughing out loud at myself like, who the hell hands me their keys to their $10 million boat and go here, Camo, take my boat to Australia. It's so ridiculous to me that I literally laugh at myself all, all the time. 
it's it's wild. It's um, I get to get on a lot of amazing boats and go to some crazy places. Yeah, I get I I get really get boat envy when you start posting the pictures of the boats that you're on, and you know my little forty eight foot Chris Craft Catalina, you know, is like a dinghy to some of these. It it's is, just amazing. It is, but it's your boat. And I think, like, to me, I think it's cooler that you own that boat than me being on their their boat because it's yours, man. It's your boat to live your dream on and you're doing it. So to me, I think that is cooler than, like, what I do because I don't own a boat. I don't get to go where I want to go. I go where I'm paid to go. And so it's a little different. But I get it because I get to go on a lot of boats that most people never get to experience, even walking on, much less right. traveling across the world on it. And so, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty unique. Um, just kind of lucked into it, but I sort of always lived under a lucky star, obviously, because like you think lightning doesn't strike twice. Well, it struck with glitter. It certainly struck with pirate and it struck with the boat thing. Like most people that are doing what I'm doing on the boats have spent an entire career in the marine yachting industry to get to a place. It's like their retirement, the perk for a lifetime spent boating where they finally got into the place where they get to do the cream of the crop, the coolest part of it. And yet I just lucked into it one day and now I'm cruising around the world on some amazing <laughs> yachts. And I will say most of them I can't post on the internet because they're people's private yachts and right. these aren't the kind of people that like putting their things out on the internet. So the ones that I do post are usually like a boat that's being sold is on the market and has to, for whatever reason, be moved or it's not currently owned by somebody that would be particular about that. Most of them, we sign non-disclosure agreements so that like they just don't want their business being public knowledge and me talking about anybody talking about it. Right. So I don't even get to take pictures of some of the super cool ones, but the ones that I do put on there are still Really cool boats. Absolutely. Yeah, no, they're it's it's amazing. They're incredible. So besides doing your current thing, moving boats, anything in the future? That's a good question. It's not that I'm done doing boats. There's still a couple places that I haven't been that I want to go. It just the opportunity hasn't come up. Like I turned down more trips than I'm currently doing. Um, obviously, crossing the South Pacific and getting to visit some of those South Pacific islands that you can only get to by boat has been a lifelong dream. So that was kind of the pinnacle of my career. But there's still some places and things I want to do. And when those opportunities come up, I'll do that again. For right now, it's like I'm not just doing the Seattle to San Diego. I could be doing that full time as a job, but I choose not to. 
don't really need to do that run again. I know it by heart. <laughs> but there's some places I still want to go, and when that comes up, I'll do that. Kind of working on a new idea right now. We'll see where it goes. But um, this is one of our rental houses, and we're working on – we had a renter in here for the past eight years. Went to go re-rent it and realized it was time for a refresh and redo it. So we're kind of in the process of that. Once we finish this, we're, I guess, still deciding what we're going to do. But one of the things that we'd like to do next is – I'll call it the van life, like the sprinter van, and go explore North America by road and see. Like I said, I've traveled a lot and been to most major cities, going to conventions or trade shows. But we live in a pretty cool country with a lot of stuff to see. And so there's, you know, I think I'd like to go do that for a, a while. That's, so that's probably next. So hashtag van life. Hashtag van life, yeah. The vandemic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think most of my life I've dreamt about doing it in a school bus. But just like race cars, part of it was just building my own school bus. The reality is I live in suburbia. I don't have a shop, so I don't think my HOA is going to be down with me building a school bus out in front of my, <laughs> my you know... My planned community home. So I'll probably buy a ready-made van life, which, you know, they're more comfortable to drive in. But I've always loved the hippie school bus. Like, it's always been a thing for me. Right. This I think I think that would be more of an adventure because you're probably going to spend more time wrenching on it. I would definitely spend more time keeping it running, sure. <laughs> and, you know, let's be fair. That's not usually the woman's ideal of... Traveling the country, to me, putting a new tranny in on the side of some rural highway adds to the adventure, but I can do without. I've done that enough, I think, at this point. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, I want to say, Kama, thank you so much for allowing me to come down here and sit with you and, and have this discussion and, and just talk about everything that, you know, has gone on. It's been great. I know... I know there was a little bit of little bit of fear there maybe of of getting back into some of this, but uh hopefully this was an easy process for you. I enjoyed it. The reason I said no, I felt like when I stepped away from pirate, I was done with it and <clears throat> didn't want to feel like a has been trying to relive my glory days talking about it was kind of a hang up of mine so like I just it was just easier to say no I didn't feel the need to explain it to the public I mean they all have their perception of what happened and that's fair you know that's how they experienced it and had it been and I apologize I haven't listened to your show I I just haven't so just wasn't really ready to be a has-been and talk about how cool I was on pirate so <laughs> You know, I'm just me. I've always just been just another dummy that got lucky. And I've enjoyed the time. Mostly good seeing you again, Rich. I mean, it's been been a while since we've been on an adventure together. We used Absolutely. To, used to be kind of a regular thing for us, and it's been a while. So I will say let's make a point of getting together and 
going on some dumb adventure. Yeah, Maybe. if you get one of hey. those really cool trips and you need another person to come along on on one of the, the boats, let me know. Well, I know that there was there was a time we were transition. I was transitioning out of the rock crawling and the racing, and now I've got a partner. Where I can do everything as long as I have internet at times. You know, and, and thank God we have like Starlink and those things. Starlink's been a game changer for yes. us. You know that I can do those kind of things now, and uh, so we're not traveling like we did. We don't have. I don't have the. Uh, the I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the, what the leash you might say. Generally speaking, we don't need another crew member. We've we're a pretty solid team with what we have. But I can invite you anyways to come along and experience it. And I'd like to share it with you because I know you love boats. You have a boat. Um, but these are sort of a different kind of boat. And I'd like for you to see what it's about and enjoy it. So let's make that the goal. I'll, okay. Uh, I'll even take a trip that I might not normally take because it's easier for you to do than some of the ones we do. And we'll go spend five days moving a boat somewhere. Sounds like a plan. I, I appreciate like it. it, buddy. And and thank you for the friendship that we've had over the years. It's uh, It means a lot. You know, I feel like it's been mostly a friendship. There's been times where it's been a business relationship because... That's what it needed to be. Absolutely. But I've always just considered you a friend. So well, I like that. Take care. And everybody out there, I hope you enjoy this conversation with with Camo. And if you didn't, well, who can blame him? Because, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, thanks. Peace out. And uh, see you next time. Sounds good. Bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.